Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. There is a storm on the horizon. A hundred years ago, you could assume that everybody held a Christian worldview, went to church, claimed at least to be a Christian. Over the course of the last hundred years, that has changed and has seemed over the past few decades to move into warp speed. There's a cultural and spiritual revolution that is occurring right before our eyes. It is going to bring trouble and trial to true believers. This revolution informs us that pleasure is the ultimate goal and desire of life. So, sexual pleasure is not to be confined to marriage. In fact, when one even mentions that sex should be held off for marriage, they're just seen as plain weird, odd, bizarre. Further, it's not even anymore confined to men and women. The LGBTQ movement has shattered those pretenses. And if you dare to stand, you'll be swept away as obsolete. But the revolution can't stop there. The T in the LGBTQ means that even the very idea of gender is under assault. You can be whatever gender you want to be. And if you argue, you're called phobic, fearful, hateful. Just across the border in Canada, this last year, a father was imprisoned for hate speech and child abuse because he refused to allow his 12-year-old to undergo sex reassignment surgery and hormone treatments. For the first time in our history, we have both a transgender individual and a homosexual sitting in the president's cabinet. This past week, an order went out to all American embassies that the gay pride flag is to be flown from the flagpole during Pride Month. While they've been distracting us with COVID issues, the revolution has been quietly sprinting forward. In his first hundred days in office, this president has advanced the revolution more than any of his successors. But even more concerning is that the number of self-identified Christians, not just true Christians, but people who even claim to be Christians, has dropped at a faster rate in the last decade than at any other time in history, to the point where it is expected in the next two decades we will be in the minority. The majority of Generation Z, the young people of today, self-identify as nuns, meaning no religious beliefs at all, none whatsoever. Even among those in the church, this generation has been turning from the faith to the extent that, parents, you cannot assume that your child believes what you believe and agrees with what you agree with. You can't assume that they are with you. You must labor to found them in the word of God. Because society is laboring to found them in secularism. In the not far distant future, this storm will arrive at our doorstep. We'll be called to stand. It will arrive. Society will seek to overwhelm us and force us to comply with their beliefs. And if we don't 
comply will seek to wipe us away. The outer walls have been breached and we've got a decision to make. Will we stand or will we fall? In the first century, the church at Ephesus faced a similar crossroads. Pagan society had encroached into the church. The people were busy obsessing over myths and foolish teaching. And they didn't notice the encroaching battle. They were interpreting scripture to fit their agenda. And so Paul wrote this epistle to inform them and Timothy how to stand against the oncoming storm. And as he closes the epistle, he gives Timothy and the church a command. And the command is simple. Stand in the truth. Stand in the truth. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As we examine this text, we'll do so in three parts. The charge, the witnesses, and the motivation. Let's begin with the charge. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with this charge, means to command, to instruct. It means that this section is not a recommendation. It's not a request. This is a command. We are commanded to do this. If you are a child of God, this is an obligation that you must follow. Keep the commandments. What is this commandment? Well, he tells us first that we are to keep it. The word keep means to keep under guard, to maintain, to keep in, in custody, to stand firm in it. We are to stand firm, to battle for, to maintain, to steward, to hold firm the commandment. And so it's important that we ask, what is the commandment that's referred to here? Now, there have been several ideas put forth, several answers given to this question but they really break into two divisions. One is that the commandment is something very specific. Some say it's specific, that it's the commands of verses 11 and 12. Uh, some say that it's the commands given at Timothy's baptism or, or ordination vows. Some, uh, John Calvin says it's, it's the epistle as a whole is the command. A second answer is that the command could be something more general, such as, the Christian faith and ministry or or the basic thrust of the letter or the gospel as a rule of life. 
As we examine the context of the text, there does not seem to be anything that seems to limit the reference of what this commandment is. In fact, the commandment seems to include more than any one part of the immediate context. And so I would conclude that the commandment referred to is the entirety of the challenge in the epistle, namely the sum of the Christian life, Christian belief and faith. The obligations of the gospel is found in the word of God. In other words, we're to keep the commandment of Christ. And it melds with the commandment given by Christ in John 15. Verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In fact, his final statement to us in Matthew 28 was that we were to teach all people to observe all that Christ commanded us. Matthew 28, verse 20. So we have a commandment to live like Christians. We are to stand firm for the truth of the word of God. He tells them, I urge you to keep this commandment. And throughout 1 Timothy, he's been telling them, stand for the teaching of the word of God. With this command, there are two important notes. We are to keep it unstained and free from reproach. We are to keep it unstained and free from reproach. This idea of being unstained, it's without spot. It's a concept that was used in religious worlds. It refers to an animal that is unblemished, free from any error, and able then to be made as a sacrifice. In other words, we are not to allow the teaching of the world to be mixed with the teaching of the word. We're to fight for the purity of Scripture. Too many and too much of modern Christian teaching is mixed with secular ideas. Too often we twist the word to fit the agenda we want to press forward rather than allowing the text to determine our thinking. We can't reinterpret Scripture in light of modern society. The text means what the text has always meant. It doesn't change. And so we stand against the sexual revolution because the text means what it says. Not because we're hateful. Not because we're bigots. Not because we don't want you to love and have good relationships, but because the creator has laid out the path to human flourishing. And this path limits the sexual union to one man and one woman in marriage only for life. We stand for two distinct genders Not because we're hateful and not because we're bigots, but because the creator declared that he created them, created us male and female. And so our biology determines our gender. We stand for justice in a different way from the world because we understand that the world is not divided into the oppressed and the oppressors. Rather, it is divided into children of God and children of Satan. And justice is determined by God while Satan distorts it. The text informs us that the answer is always the gospel. That justice is never simple. 
And so we don't run to modern sociological theories, but to the word of God. And it informs us that salvation is open to all people, regardless of race. And we are to love and treat all people with respect and dignity as people made in the image of God, regardless of race. See, the problem is that we have not kept the commandment unstained. We've sullied the word of God with our own thoughts and our own desires and the world's thinking. We've made it mean what we want it to mean, not what it means. And even worse, many of us have simply stained the truth by ignoring it. We don't care. So we're to keep the commandment free or unstained in the world. But secondly, we are to keep the commandment free from reproach. It means give no cause for accusation. As we stand for truth, we are to do so free from reproach. When asked why many don't go to church, the most popular response is that the church is full of hypocrites. And it's easy to pass off that accusation by simply stating, you know, we're all hypocrites. We're all a work in progress. That's a bad reason. But the reality is that this is a popular accusation for a reason. We love to say one thing and do another. We love to make the word of God fit whatever we think at the moment and stand in utter hypocrisy. Too many Christians are simply mean and angry. There's no grace or mercy. No ability to interact with people who disagree with them other than to yell loudly. This ought not be the case. 1 Peter 2.20 informs us that there is no glory in suffering for responding sinfully. The glory from God only comes when we suffer for being righteous. We're to persevere in our faith and ministry, standing for the truth of the word of God. We are to keep the commandment unspotted by the containments of false teaching and to be kept in a way that we don't expose God's commandments, God's word to fault or blame justly. But secondly, we see that we are to keep the commandment until Christ comes. You see, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to stand for truth. As the world gets worse and worse, it's becoming harder and harder to stand for the truth. It's easy to become discouraged and distracted. We're reminded that the battle's not over. And as we stand, we're reminded to look to the sky from where our help comes. He says, look, keep the commandments until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word appearing is the word epiphany. And had an important word in Greek culture. It signaled the divine intervention to bring assistance and salvation. It was the time when God would appear and interact. And so while the storm is blowing may even seem to overwhelm us at times. Remember, the king is coming. He will appear. 
It's easy to get discouraged because it's been long. It's been so long. He said, I will come. Lord, how long until you come? How long must we continue to suffer until you decide to come back? Well, we're told in verse 15 that this will happen. He will display it at the proper time. Sometimes I hear Christians say, it's the end times. And you know what? You're right. It is the end times. The end times started when Christ went to heaven. When's he going to come? At the proper time. When's the proper time? Well, it means at his own opportune time. Christ is going to come back. His appearing will most definitely occur, but it will happen according to his sovereign timetable. The sovereign God is in control and does his work when he deems best. That's why Christ said in Matthew 24, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. So don't be discouraged that it hasn't happened yet. And if God tarries for a long time yet, don't be discouraged. He will come at his proper time. And when he comes, we are told in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we are to stand for the truth until he comes. Keep the commandment. That's your charge. Your charge is to obey the word of God and keep it free from stain by the world and reproach. It's not to obey it when you want to. It's not to believe the parts you like, but rather to stand for truth regardless of the consequences. To stand for the word of God and the commandments of Scripture in their context and to obey them. We have witnesses in this. He says, I charge you, verse 13, the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. You see, this commandment was not made in a vacuum. This commandment stands in the presence of divine witnesses who will hold us accountable to keep the truth of the word in the middle of a corrupt world. First, we are witnessed by God who gives Life word gives life means to make alive. You see, God is the creator of life and the sustainer of the universe. He's the ultimate judge and authority. He's the one to whom we answer. He's the one who truly matters because we will answer to him. So it's vital that we stand properly because God is the one who gives life. But he also equips us to stand Because he gives life. He gives life to all. He gave life to everything. But he grants spiritual life to his elect. And we have the ability to stand firm because we have true life. And while he's our judge, he gives us the tools and the ability to obey his command. You can stand because God will give you life. Further, we're reminded of the witness of the second member of the divine trinity. He understands what we face because he himself was faithful in the face of trial. Christ Jesus, who was faithful. How was he faithful? He was faithful before Pilate. He could have escaped the cross. Yet he stood before Pilate in obedience and faith. He stood as our substitute. He proclaimed boldly his sovereign authority and was condemned to the cross 
because of it. He never wavered. He never faltered. He was faithful even to death. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus faced what you face. He stood against a hostile culture. He stood against those who would put him to death. And he remained faithful. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, that's the motivation. He says, We're to do so until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he'll display at the proper time. And then he reminds us of the person of God. Verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Why do we stand for truth as it becomes even more unpopular. When the day comes that we will face fines, imprisonment, cancellation, ostracization for sharing the word of God and refusing to go, uh, uh, refusing to fail to stand against culture, to go along with it, it'll be easy and comfortable to give up. Why should you stand firm? What will motivate us to continue to do right. Paul tells us your view of God is what will motivate you. If all you see is pleasure and comfort of this world, then there is no reason to stand. If you worship money and stuff, there's no reason to stand. If you value the acceptance of others more than the acceptance of God, there is no reason to stand. But if you see God for who he really is, you will not be able to do anything else but stand. You see, your view of God determines your view of life. So Paul reminds us of our great God. So see first God's supreme person. He says, he who is blessed the word blessed is an interesting word. It's the word makarios. It's an attribute of God. This word blessed occurs in the New Testament only here and in chapter 1, verse 11. And it means that God contains all the happiness in himself. The word blessed means satisfied, joyful, happy. You see, the only thing that God needs 
to be fully happy and satisfied is himself. His satisfaction and joy is not dependent on any other thing. And further, that means that because he made us in in his image, the only way that we will find true happiness is in God. God is the source of joy and satisfaction. He alone supplies our needs. He is the source of true joy, the fountain of happiness, the root of satisfaction. He is blessed. He alone has immortality. He is unable to die. We recognize that we are mortal beings. Right. The saying goes, there are only two things guaranteed in this world. Right. Death and taxes. We know death. We recognize we are mortal. We're all going to die. Now, true. We are immortal in the sense that we will live somewhere forever after death, but that immortality is given by God. It's not innate in ourselves. God, on the other hand, has life in himself. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He's unable to die. That means he can never be defeated because he can't be killed. When man tried to kill God... He conquered death by breaking its shackles and rising from the grave. No one else brought him back from the dead. He brought himself back because God is immortal. You know, everything around us has a beginning and has an ending. Everything has an expiration date, but not God. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we don't need to fear man or man's agenda because it has an expiration date. Even Governor Whitmer's orders. There's an expiration date. But God does not have an expiration date. Our God has granted immortality to us. That's the amazing thing. This is the message of 1 Corinthians 15. Our immortal God will make us immortal as well. He says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be the God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is what motivates us to stand for truth. Because God is immortal, we are immortal. Because God cannot die, we will live. And so Paul concludes, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I mean, what can the world do to us? Kill us? And we get to be with God forever. Let us live. 
then we get to keep proclaiming Christ. That's why we stand. We serve a God that they cannot kill. Try as they might, God remains because he's immortal. Further, he's blessed, he's immortal, and he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. This thought parallels the idea of God being invisible in chapter 1, verse 17. This idea emphasizes God's transcendent majesty. We think of when the nation of Israel approached Mount Sinai, where God would give them the law, and He'd appear to them. And there we read in Exodus 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses spent 40 days there on the top of Mount Sinai receiving the law. And in the midst of that, he asked God that he might grant him to see God. And God's response was Exodus 33:20. He said, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." Unapproachable light. So what John said in John 1:18, "No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He's made him known, because God's glory is overwhelming. He's pictured as light. This is the picture of the glory that is to come. When we enter the new Jerusalem, there'll be no sun. Revelation 21, 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In Revelation 22, 5, he says, And night will be no more. They will need no lights of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. From Ephesians 5, 8, 9, we learn that this light, with reference to God, indicates His goodness, righteousness, and truth. See, God's glory, His perfection is so great It is overwhelming. It consumes all things. This is why God is pictured in Hebrews 12, 29 as a consuming fire. Nothing can stand before him. God dwells in unapproachable light. He is so brilliant. No man can look on him. So holy. No sin can touch him. So righteous. He can do no wrong. So just. That no sin will stand before him. His light consumes all darkness. His glory consumes all sin. No man can stand in his radiant brilliance. The kings of this world think that they stand supreme. And God laughs. The drivers of society think that they can dictate morality to God. And he scoffs. God is so infinitely holy that no human being can see Him and live. But the miracle is that the pure in heart 
will see God. Christ himself said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One day he will reveal himself to us. We will be perfect in righteousness and then be able to behold him. And when we behold him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is in all his radiant splendor. So, dear believer, behold your God. You know, our confidence to stand for truth, our confidence in God's work and willingness to leave things in his hands arises from the kind of God we know him to be. For Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. See God's supreme person. Secondly, see God's sovereign power. He's called the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul ends this declaration to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is called the only sovereign, the mono, the one and only. There is no other. There is no uh, competition. There is no replica. There is only one sovereign, only one ruler, only one who is master and who has full control. And this word sovereign describes not a derived power. He doesn't receive this sovereignty because he was voted into the position or because he was born into it. But rather, this refers to one who inherently possesses the power. It is his because he is who he is. He is the only sovereign. He is the ruler of all things. And this means he never loses control. He never loses power. Nothing Nothing, nothing happens apart from his sovereign control. Even when the storm rages and all seems lost, he is orchestrating all events for his own glory. We lose control. We're surprised by things. We're overwhelmed. We're under authority. But God is not. He rules all things, even over those who think they rule. He rules because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is quoting Deuteronomy ten seventeen: For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. Psalm 136, verse 3, give thanks To the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. And one day he will come and take his throne. Revelation 17, 14 tells us they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 19 tells us on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written king of kings and Lord of lords. 
You see, God possesses all of the highest power over all who possess power and has full control over all who exercise control. This means that any who are in power are not a mistake. It means God did not simply just allow them to be in power, but actually placed them in their position in his sovereign rule. Daniel chapter 2 tells us, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged this. He was a wicked, wicked king. He thought he had placed himself into that position. And God told him no. He refused to acknowledge this. And so God made him go actually insane And he lived outside the gates like an animal. And then we are told in Daniel 4, verse 34, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done you know even in the middle of an unusual time we feel as though we've lost control even as we see this storm approaching at the gates where we are going to have to decide whether or not to stand for the word of god god has not lost control he is the only sovereign the only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we must say to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The word honor is the idea of the reverence and respect that God is due. And the word dominion means generally power or light and has the idea of a nuanced rule, sovereignty, dominion. The rule of a great king. And together, these two phrases, with the two phrases, they make the resounding claim that God's power and authority to rule over all human powers is beyond compare. See, we don't need to fear what this world tells us because they're not in control. We don't need to give in to the revolution that has taken place. Because they will lose. Because our God reigns. A storm is on the horizon. Dark days are ahead. And you will be forced to choose. Will you stand for the truth of the word with righteousness and free from reproach? Or will you respond like the world or given to the demands of the world. It's coming. It's just across our border. Today, there are three churches and pastors in Canada that have been closed because they chose to worship. The day's coming. We will be forced to stand. Will you stand for the truth of the word with righteousness? 
and free from reproach? Or will you respond like the world in anger or give in to the demands of the world? We are and will be ordered to change the meaning of Scripture. We will be expected to buy into the sexual, racial, and cultural revolution. Will we stand? It all depends on your view of God. Who's like your God? No one. There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Christian, the God you have conceived in your mind is too small. You see, God is great. He's beyond anything we could ever imagine. And so he's worth your life. He's worth sacrificing everything for. Your stuff can't bring you happiness. Your job, your toys, your clothes, your house, your money, your family, your children cannot bring you happiness. Only God is blessed. Only He brings happiness. Only with God is satisfaction and joy found because God is beyond all things. He is supreme and majestic. I want to conclude by reading to you three texts of Scripture. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the, the, birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Hebrews 13, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Your God is great. So I give you four challenges. Number one, stand for the truth of the word of God. Don't buy into the arguments of this world. In everything, go to this book. Stand for the truth of the word of God. But that means that you need to live by the word of God. In order to stand for it free from reproach, you have to follow it and obey it. Not just the parts you like, but every aspect. Let it dictate 
what you believe and what you do. And third, that means you have to study the word to know what it says to live by it and stand for it. If all you do is every Sunday, come here and open your Bible, you'll be lost. You will fall. When the storm comes, you'll be blown away. But if you ground yourself in this word and study it out, you can confidently stand with God. How do you do that? And what happens when you do that? You behold your God. Your God is great. You don't need all those other things to find happiness. They're gifts of God for you to enjoy. We'll see next week. But they ought not be your life. They ought not be the source of your satisfaction and joy. Instead, see your incredible God. All you need is Christ. Father, we thank you that you have given yourself to us, your creation. Help us to stand faithful to the word of God, not to twist its meaning, but to let it dictate what it means. Not to decide what parts we want to obey, but the whole. Lord, help us to be obedient to you and find satisfaction and joy. Lord, we understand that a society continues to degrade, that we will be forced to again boldly proclaim that you have created the physical relationship between a man and a woman for marriage only, and it is beautiful in that relationship, but outside of it, it is corrupt and wicked. Lord, we will have to say that there is men and women, as bizarre as that feels. That we will have to be willing to stand for true biblical justice. Lord, we understand that it is going to become harder and harder. So help us to stand now. Help us to be willing to obey now when there are no consequences. Help us to love you and to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.